Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to Front Row Knowles. And a big thanks to longtime sponsor of this program and this podcast, the Dunlap Champions Club. Obviously, as I speak, we don't know what football season is going to look like. And like most things associated with COVID-19 and the coronavirus, there are plenty of questions and not necessarily answers. So this is what I'd like you to do. Whenever we get some more clarity about football season, know this. The Dunlap Champions Club will have a plan. It's a great venue to take in football if spectators are going to be allowed this fall or whenever football season kicks off. There's shade, there's food, there's access to adult beverages if so inclined, and you can believe that they'll have as solid a plan as anything uh, involved at Doak Campbell Stadium in terms of keeping things sanitized as uh, we try to play this football season. So that said, thanks again for their longtime support of this program. I encourage you, if you have questions or want uh, some answers as to what the plan might look like, call 644-1830, option 1, for more information or to schedule a tour. And now, without further ado, Front Row Knowles. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener, online at ctf.nu. Now, here's Tom and Keith. Good day, everybody. We welcome you to Front Row Knowles, Tom Block and Bob Ferrante playing the part of Keith Jones here for our first and final segments of the show. Keith had a little business trip. And, Bob, as it turns out, all it took to get some news out of the ACC and the world of college football was to force Keith off the show, just get him out of town, and boom, we get a news release late in the day from Greensboro, and we have something to talk about other than not having anything to talk about. So we could have just sent KJ on the road in June at some point, and this would have happened earlier? Now that we know this, yeah, we're going to send him on the road months ago. So the ACC very late today, and this is uh, – we had uh, – in, in to be transparent, we had already taped a first segment because the media reports were that even though the presidents met today, there wasn't going to be news today. It looked like it was pushed to next week. Uh, late in the day, the ACC sent word, and let's – we've only got a few minutes to get into this, Bob, so – Here's, the, here's what the ACC announced. They're going to play a 10-plus-1 schedule, game, so 10 conference games, one non-conference. The season will start the week of the Saturday of November 12th. So basically that would be what, what's week two. Week one was when Florida State was scheduled to play. Week zero is what the Big 12 is talking about that last Saturday in August. But week two now is uh, the first week the ACC will play. We don't have dates for FSU. But in a quick synopsis, I'll just put it this way, Bob, and you can react. So West Virginia and Boise are off the schedule. Ten conference games, a chance to play Florida. The home schedule is much more attractive for FSU, especially if fans are allowed to attend. And the schedule overall is much more difficult for Mike Norvell in year one. That's that's what this looks like, and we'll get into it. It is much more difficult. I think it's really entertaining and challenging. You know, I've talked about wanting to see more teams from the coastal on Florida State's schedule, we do get that. We get to see Georgia Tech and North Carolina and Virginia here in Tallahassee. That's very attractive. Notre Dame plays a full 10-game ACC schedule. I can't believe we're even talking about this, but it's happening. Revenue sharing is happening on Notre Dame's behalf, too. They are on Florida State's schedule as a road game. I can only imagine that will be a November cold one up in South Bend, but let's see how that plays out. And really something I'm very excited about as a one-year trial, ACC is going with a one-division 
15 team format. What that means is the top two teams will play in the ACC title game in December. I think that's really exciting. So if you lose a couple games, you still have a really good shot. Florida State doesn't feel like, well, we have to jump Clemson somehow. They can still get up into that maybe number two spot if Clemson is the clear runaway number one. It's a really good point because when you have Clemson and FSU or two top dogs, one loss really counts as two in the division standings, but not in this format. So let's go to the, the, the home schedule to put this in perspective. And again, we don't have dates, but in effect what happened here is Samford, Wake Forest, and Boston College came off of FSU's home schedule and got replaced by Georgia Tech, North Carolina, and Virginia. And you still have Pitt, Clemson, and Florida. So this, in a scenario for FSU and Seminole Boosters, if you could have fans, it's as good a home schedule as you're going to get. you got Clemson and Florida, and now Georgia Tech is on there, plus North Carolina, Virginia, and Pitt. That's as good a home schedule as you can get. Now, you mix those teams in. You've lost Wake Forest and BC for, frankly, better teams. You do get Duke on the road, but you also get North Carolina on the road. You don't get the gimme against Samford. And all of a sudden, you look at those 11 games, and that's a tough, that's a tough road to hoe for Mike Norvell and company in year one. There's not, there's not gimmies in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the schedule, and I, I just – hey, if you can win – six or seven of these and, and go six and five, seven and four. I think you take it all things considered with the challenges of a first year coach, eight new, eight new assistant coaches. Um, you like to think force they can do better than that, of course, but let's see how this plays out. I think it's a really, really attractive schedule. I'll be curious to see in the coming days, how does Seminole boosters do a seating allocation for fans we know there's about 20,000 season tickets sold. Do they have to do with social distancing some kind of flex pack where you can only get in with Florida and two games or you go Clemson and two games? You're probably not going to get a chance to see both games. But with an, a schedule as attractive as this, I think even if Dope Campbell Stadium is 25%, maybe a little bit more, you're still going to get into some really good football that's what we've been waiting to see all summer, too, is, A, can we see some football, and, B, are we going to see really good football? I think maybe that that fits what fans are really looking for. So let me temper this just a bit, Bob, because one wrinkle, not anticipated, because I thought that the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 would be in lockstep. But the Big 12 in the last week has moved to week zero and scheduled non-conference games for late in August. The ACC now has gone 10 plus one. And as we tape this, and again, for transparency's sake, it's 513 in the evening as Bob and I are talking. There's reports out of Sports Illustrated and Ross Dellinger specifically that the SEC is going to adopt a conference-only 10-game schedule. And the SEC presidents are scheduled to meet on Thursday and vet this. So what that means is Maybe the Florida game goes away, and if it does, it's going to be on the SEC directly and indirectly on Florida for not letting that game get played, if you will. Uh, the ACC, the way they wrote the parameters on the non-conference game is conference teams can play a non-conference foe if it's from your home state. And the idea is to limit travel. Of course, if you've been in Florida, you can still travel quite a bit and still be in Florida. But if the SEC is not allowing that, that all of a sudden means that you have a non-conference state 
And let's just throw it out there. Could you get Willie Taggart and FAU? Would you play UCF? Where would you go to try and get that game if it's not Florida, or would you just let it slide? It's a really, really good question. I think ideally at the end of the day, FSU and Florida figure out a way to make it happen. If it doesn't, and you're starting to scramble and looking at other schools, I, I don't want to play Willie Taggart just because of the chance that something crazy happens. You've, you've got players who are out or injured, and it's a loss. That's the kind of thing that doesn't sit well with fans or I think the players. I'm not sure Florida State wants to do something like that. Central Florida becomes attractive. Maybe you try to host a um, another AAC team. Memphis wouldn't make sense for obvious reasons, but you try to pull somebody in. And I think the, the – Well, the you, can't, you can't pull somebody in from out of state, though, so you'd have to go to USF or – I mean, you're limited to the, the other schools in the state, Bob. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, this is this is what's so up in the air and, and remarkably challenging. I think for the schedule makers, I I don't know what the what the great answer is. Um, there there just isn't one. It's what the the FBS schools in the state again are South Florida, Central Florida, FIU, FAU. You probably prefer to play Florida International of of any of those just because it it might be the easiest win, right? But then again, I think the other thing in the ACC release is their COVID testing measures and standards have to be the same as the ACC's. So that it, it remains in question, are some of these smaller schools able to test at the same standard? Yeah. yeah, and that's a good point. So really it limits it. You've already played Miami. It limits it to Florida. And if the SEC says conference only, that game uh, goes away, it, it would appear. So uh, obviously, we're scrambling to record this. We don't know all the answers. Just trying to get you the highlights. Notre Dame is in, all in for this year, which means that the television money for Notre Dame NBC games played in South Bend will go into the ACC pool and be split up. So that sounds great. Just going to let everybody know that that's only about $15 million. It's less than what Notre Dame is going to collect by getting a full share by being, and they are going to get a full share this year. Normally they don't because they're all in the conference. And so even though that money goes into the pot, uh, there'll really be a reduction, if you will, I would think. It won't, it'll be minimal, but you're not getting $15 million more to split up. I don't know that I'm articulating that well. The bigger story there, though, Bob, is uh, to me, does Notre Dame like the conference experience? Do they go through this? Do they, and it'd be an ACC worst-case scenario, unless Notre Dame was enticed by going through it, winning a championship and saying, you know what? We actually kind of like that. We we do it full time. That would be a win. But other than that, ACC, uh, Notre Dame coming in, winning the league and disappearing again, that wouldn't be very favorable for anybody other than the Irish. I don't think Notre Dame is in it for the long haul. I think this is a one-year stopgap solution. Notre Dame, I think, wants its independence and financially – it makes more sense for them on any given year that's that's not involving a pandemic for them to be independent and to have those two TV contracts. I, I think the ACC needs to do whatever it can long term to bring Notre Dame into the fold. It's it's probably not going to happen in the near term, but when all these TV contracts start to shake up in 2023 and beyond, that's I think when Notre Dame's going to see that there's real money behind getting in on board with an ACC. 
We've only got about a minute to go, Bob. Just some other highlights. Fall sports or uh, Olympic sports are also going to resume, and there's some dates in play. I won't get into all that. Uh, one takeaway here, there had been some discussion about fall baseball in terms of competition, and they tabled that. So Mike Martin Jr., and they can have their regular fall ball, but you're not going to be playing Auburn or playing other teams based on it. And I'm sure that's to limit expenses right now when you don't know what the revenue is going to look like because we still don't know how many fans are going to be allowed, what are the dates of the games. And candidly, I don't know as we're talking if the ACC has determined those dates or if they've just got the opponents and now they've got to get into the machine. And, you know, Florida State, for example, still has Clemson on the schedule. No idea if it'll be the same date in early October as what was originally announced. Uh, All in all, I'm surprised that the news came today. I thought they would kick it down the curb. And uh, we got 30 seconds to go, Bob. We'll take it. At least for now, it looks like football's on. I think some things to watch in the coming days. Will football games be scheduled on unusual nights, Thursdays and Fridays? Will they try to schedule Olympic sports games on those other nights to build a weekend of importance? I think those are the kind of things that we'll see in the coming days. Lots to come and share with you all. Uh, It's coming up down the road. All right. We'll shift gears, talk recruiting with uh, Charles Fishbein from the Osceola right after this on Front Row Knowles. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Tom Block, Keith Jones with you, and we are going to dive deep into recruiting as we open up that Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. And we welcome this week's Osceola Insider, and we are pleased to bring to the program, bring back to the program, I should say, because we've had him on before. But uh, this is Charles Fishbein, recruiting analyst, founder of Elite Scouting Services, and has been at this for uh, more than two decades now. But uh, even with that wealth of experience, I would suggest that you've probably never seen a recruiting cycle quite like what we're dealing with now when coaches can't go on the road. So just how different has it been, given that you're so plugged in in this arena? Yeah, it's, it's a big difference. I mean, I, you know, I speak with co- college coaches every day. I mean, I spoke to a coach from Washington State today, and he, he was like, you know, they have different rules for their schools than they do the California schools right now. So it's like not everybody's even on the same page as far as what they're able to do, what they can and can't do. But it's pretty much the same thing across the board for everybody. The The biggest difficulty right now, especially for Florida State, is they've now had two transition classes in the last four years. And what I be, mean by that is you've had with Tagger coming in under Jimbo and then less than two years later, you're bringing in another coach. Always that first class is always usually just one thrown together. So both You've had like two of those classes in the last three years. On top of it, now you have a pandemic. So these guys really aren't going to be able to pull in that top class that they really want to until year three, where most of the time it's year two that that transition happens. Yeah, I guess the, uh, I don't want, well, saving grace isn't maybe the right term, but I feel like first year coaches are kind of getting a mulligan if we play this year, given the way the circumstances have been. So maybe Norvell will get, you know, that, that extra year to, to bring in the guys that he wants. Um, 
keeping it big picture initially, and then we'll get a little bit more specific. Uh, you know, even with news coming out, starting to come out about how conferences are going to try to play this season, how important is it, do you think, for Florida State, even to play three games, if that's what it shakes out to, and show some progress and movement in the right direction in terms of making some noise with with recruits who their frame of reference right now is what they saw last year in the last game when FSU lost the Sun Bowl. Yeah, I mean, I think it's huge because you look even down the road at University of Miami. While they didn't have a great year last year, there are aspects of Manny Diaz and the University of Miami, especially on the defensive side of the ball, that they've been very good, at least on that side of the ball. So he's now brought in a new coordinator, so there's hope there. Uh, guys want to just see what Norvell is able to do offensively and defensively and see what type of schemes they run, and it's something they want to be part of. They need to play something. I don't care if it's five games, six games, just something to, so these recruits have something to cling on to. In terms of evaluation, you always hear about coaches that are able to see uh, in these prospects, juniors and seniors. Well, they can't see them now. And it, it, in your experience, is there a difference between a coach's ability to evaluate talent in person versus a coach's ability to evaluate talent on tape? I think the number one thing that I look for in evaluation is a lot different than what a lot of people think is evaluating is what is that kid like when they meet them in person? Every Listen, all these guys that they're recruiting can physically play at Florida State or they wouldn't be on them. But I, I go all the way back to Jermaine Thomas. I remember when he came out at that time, Nigel Carr and Avis Comack were the two guys that FSU really wanted. And Jermaine was the guy that basically was like a throw-in. And I remember going to a game up in South Carolina, and they were down. It was the final drive of the game. Uh, great, uh, Carr had taken himself out of the game. Avis Comack had taken himself out of the game. And they were losing. And Jermaine Thomas went down the line and told everybody. Uh, he, they weren't kind words. He's like, we're going to, you know what, win this football game. And you saw when he got to Florida State, he was the leader of those three and the only one that panned out. So a lot of times fans look at that film, but college coaches want to see when they go to, for spring evaluation, can this kid relate to coaching? Can they be coached up? How do they perform when the game's on the line? Do they quit? That's something you'll never see in a highlight film. And fans get so you know jacked up about seeing a guy catching a 40-yard touchdown pass but is that guy doing it in a game that doesn't matter? Or is he doing it in a game that gets that team to a state championship or even better, win the state championship? So that's a lot of the evaluation that fans uh, overlook is what are these kids like? Are they leaders on and off the field? Do they respect their coaches and teachers in class? Do they, are they coachable? Um, there's a lot of kids that I've seen that I've told coaches, listen, you know, you can recruit them, but, you know, Beware, you know, what you're, you're getting yourself into because that kid cussed his coach out. And, and coaches always think, especially college coaches, they could coach lazy out of a, um, a kid. Oh, I could get that laziness out of that kid. If I get him, he's talented enough, or I'll get that attitude out of him. And that's what's happened. I mean, you look at, you know, you look at a Kalon LeBourne who FSU had and now is not, you know, we're going to talk about him later. One of the biggest things with Kalon was not his talent. This kid had three different staffs and all three had issues with them off the field. And, and you got to know when you're recruiting these kids, how, you know, you could deal with some baggage, but when the game's on the line, are they going to quit? And, you know, some of these five-star kids quit because they don't get their way or 
are they going to stay in there and win you some ball games? So that's a lot of the recruiting and evaluation process that I do that the average person doesn't look at, but coaches do. I'm going to give you a phrase, and we can watch Tom roll his eyes in the back of his head, but I grew up in Wildwood, Florida, down the central part of the state, and we had a saying, if that dog won't hunt at home, he ain't going to hunt nowhere else. <laughs> it, it's a, listen, you could, like I said, you could have kids that have baggage, but will they fight for you when everything's on the line, or are they going to quit? And we've seen how many of those talented kids that have we seen come through Florida State, whether it's Fred Rouse, Willie Downs, all of these kids, yeah, they're super talented. C.J. Mizell is one of the most talented kids I ever saw on a high school football field. But if they can't get it done off the field and their character doesn't match their talent, it doesn't matter. And I, I won't put my name on those type of kids anymore. I've been burned too many times. Well, let's roll it forward then because Florida State, which did not have a lot of running back depth last year, did a nice job plugging some holes for this year. But now there's more of a need with with Kalen gone. So uh, we'll start there, and then we'll go to some of the recent news of, in terms of commitments and a decommitment that, that's happened in the last week or so. Uh, where was FSU in terms of recruiting running backs? Where are they now that the door is open because Laburn's not going to be in the mix? Yeah, I, they're going to have to, you know, expand their recruiting board. I know there was a, a kid down the road at Freeport that they were recruiting a little bit, uh, a Quan Powell, maybe, you know, circle back around on him. Maybe early on they weren't going to offer him, but now maybe they do. Uh, Amari Daniels. I know they were. There's a kid, Thaddeus Franklin, that's committed to Miami. That um, you know, he was talking to the FSU coaches as recently as this past week. Till he said, all of a sudden, the UM coaches got wind of it, and the kids like, oh, well, I'm shutting it down. You know, when a kid says that, you got a question. He's looking around. So there's options out there. Um, you know, you go and watch Memphis. The key to his offense is being able to run the football. I went and watched about at least four or five games of them last year, and it doesn't matter if they run jet sweeps or they run they run the quarterback. Their emphasis he's going to he's going to pound and ground that football and set everything else up uh, by the run. So he needs running backs. The you know I hate to jump back macro, but I will here because it, it's been so different for Norvell, and he's got a staff that doesn't have a lot of ties to the state of Florida. Obviously, you're plugged into the state of Florida. Uh, so we've seen, uh, you know, news. They, they've recruited heavily in Louisiana and Texas and areas where the, the assistant coaches, where they have ties, which makes sense. I mean, is is there really any other way they could attack this than what they're doing right now, given that I, they can't get out on the road? Yeah, I at the end of the day, Florida State sells itself. So, you know, I, I know, you know people could sit there and go, oh, well, you know, they've had a couple down years. How many programs don't have down years? the kids in the state still want to play for Florida state or they want to play for Florida. They want to play for Miami. So, you know, Norvell's coming from a program at Memphis. He won 11 ball games. This guy's considered one of the top up and coming coaches. So sell that. Um, and I think you'll be able to get a lot of these kids to take a look at Florida state right now. Their emphasis is out of state, but at the end of the day, what you're going to win with, a majority of the time at Florida State are the local kids and, you know, South Georgia. I think you really have to uh, get into that South Georgia, that Valdosta, um, all those schools down in South Georgia, Thomasville, uh, not Thomasville, the one that um, Charlie Ward came from. But those those programs, they've got to, uh, you know, get into. There's a lot of good football players this year in Tallahassee. It's probably the best year in the surrounding areas since Cromartie 
and Sims were there with Terry and Arnold. You got Deshaun Ruckert, uh, Godby. They've got uh, this sorry kid down at Graysville. They got kids within, you know, 50, 60 miles of their program. They're going to have to land those kids. And I think this year with the pandemic, they should be able to convince a lot of these kids, hey, listen, stay home. Your family can watch you play and uh, help us turn it around at Florida State. One of the other uh, segments that obviously we always talk about at Florida State in recent time is the offensive line. What do you think of the kids they've got? What do you think of the kids they're looking at? What do you think's happening with that segment as Norville starts to put his uh, stamp on it? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the kid that just committed chemo, Maconelli. I, I, I probably messed up his last name. <laughs> I'm not good with Samoan last names. I was a big fan of his four or five months ago. His profile's definitely – been sent for me to the Florida State coaches. Um, I, the kid's big. He's athletic. If you watch him, uh, his ability to get to that second and third level, I, you'll see him blocking DBs. And when you see a guy that's 265, 270 pounds running to that second and third level and finishing, you know, a lot of times you'll see guys just running in space, but they, he'll get on guys and finish plays. I was a big – I thought they should have offered him four or five months ago, and now they've offered him. Um, the S's kid that they've offered from Georgia, you watch him him play. Another guy, very strong. You know, he's he plays at a private school, and a lot of the kids he's playing against aren't the kids he's going to play at Florida State. So he's going to have to redshirt, get bigger and stronger. But the ability's there. I think the biggest mistake, and it's gone all the way back to Trickett and Jimbo. Say, I don't believe they were always on the same page when they recruited Jimbo. Wanted bigger uh, guys. Trickett was looking for more athletic guys. So they, may, they, they turned away a lot of guys. These type of guys like Chemo and the Estes kid, they, they've turned away in the past. And, and you're not going to land five All-Americans. you got to land these guys that are developmental guys that you know, hey, they're good enough to be All-ACC uh, guys. Guys that Clemson have actually recruited for a long time. Clemson doesn't have a lot of uh, five-star offense alignment on their uh, team. They've, they've recruited these type of players. Florida State has had this first board that they've always had of top guys, and then they don't have plan B or C. They've always gone back to plan D at the end, and those are the guys that really can't play. And that's the thing is find guys that, you could, that could play at Florida State and, and bridge you to that next gap. You know, if they, if they show any promise at all on that offensive line, and I think Coach Atkins is a very good coach, if they show any promise, you're going to be able to get those next guys because if these guys are getting developed, and they're three-star guys, what do you think a five-star, a high four-star offense alignment is going to think if those guys are getting drafted? Big loss with losing Slaughter? Um, anytime you – right now, any guy they lose on the old line's a loss as far as right. I'm concerned. You know, that's – it's – it's he would have been – that he would have given them three very good linemen right now, and now you're going into the summer months, August. Now, if you have three guys committed and your number's five, now you can concentrate on those one or two other kids that you really want to, you know, get in the class and not focus on five. The whole line, you have to be able to nail the ones down you want and then focus on those one or two really elite guys. And that gives you a great chance of finishing out your class by signing day. So with Slaughter and, and, and Chemo, is that uh, – I understand your point that you just made – but one decommitting, one committing—is that a net positive? Is it equal? Is it a is it a loss for Florida State? How would well, you? Well, the, the, the one thing is, is I think the last couple of years Florida State has done a very good job of 
uh, fixing the center position. I think they're going to be a lot better. Um, you know, Everly was, you know, a marginal player, but you look at last year, they struggled at center. But now you have guys like, uh, you know, Babion's probably going to get his chance to play this year, but I know they like Maurice Smith a lot. Um, Estes and Slaughter, it, they're putting numbers at it now that eventually you're going to find a guy that's going to fit in there and be very good. So Slaughter was a guy that could play guard or tackle. I mean, guard or center. So they didn't really lose a whole lot other than they lost one guy they have to replace. Chemo is more of a tackle guard center. He could play all three positions. He's a, he's a guy that uh, they can plug and play on right tackle, guard, center. And those guys are hard to find. So um, his addition is more of an addition for the Florida State class. Slaughter, they have that's just already on board. They're recruiting some other centers. There's a guy that's committed to University of Miami, uh, Lawrence Seymour. So they, it's not a huge loss other than the fact that Florida State hasn't recruited really well over the last seven or eight years on the line. So you never want to lose something uh, at that position at this point of the process. Talking with Charles Fishbein, our Osceola Insider this week, recruiting analyst, uh, elite scouting services. Charles, uh, I think – how many do you expect Florida State to sign this year? And then as a, as a second – as a follow-up, you know, who, who are some of the big fish, so to speak, that they're, that are still in play, legitimately in play? Um, yeah, they're going to sign 25. I, I just think that the quicker um, Norvell can flip this roster over and get his players in there, the better it's going to be for him. Uh, the one thing I've learned from coaches, you know, guys that I know that have been fired because they were head coaches, they say the one mistake that they made is that, a lot of times when they first got there, the guys that haven't had success is that they didn't clean house when they first got there. There's guys in the program you're just going to have to accept. Maybe they're talented, but they're not good for that locker room. So you're going to have to process those guys out and bring in your own guys. After this year, you're talking 50 of the 85 guys will have been Norvell. So by year three, you're already talking the whole roster would have already been flipped over. So me personally, I think he's going to keep bringing in 25 a year until – that, ro- that roster and that team is of his players. Have you seen a shift in what you do now that the transfer portal's in play and you can go out and find a grad transfer or another transfer with extenuating circumstances, hope for a waiver, and plug holes that way instead of waiting for a high school player to develop? I, I think the, the, the transfer thing really should not be a way of recruiting your way out of bad recruiting in the past. I think it's more – should be, hey, you know what? We lost a guy at this one position. We could plug and play. If you got to just fill your whole ro- – first off, why are guys transferring? You know, do you really want a locker room of guys that quit other programs inside your program? I, I, I question that style of recruiting. Now, can it work to fill a position? You know, there's if you, have a, you need a quarterback, you know, you, you could pull a Jalen Hurts. But when you start to pull these guys that were second string and they're unhappy at that other program, why are they leaving? You know, so, yes, some of them could come in and play, but how many – you want to you make sure you don't fill your whole roster full of guys that are basically free agents. Within kind of that same concept, do you think we'll have an early signing period? Do you think the NCAA will do something different given everything that's going on? I don't really think the NCAA knows what they're doing right now. I mean, it's like kind of a wait-and-see kick the can down the road. And it's, it's like that at the high school level. I think everybody's just hoping this thing goes away and they'll deal with it as it comes. But at some point, I think they have to push it back. Uh, I just think that you're going to probably not have 
high school football until January in the state of Florida. So um, it, unless they start playing in October or whatever, but these teams aren't going to have a whole lot of time for uh, if they start in late September, October to really look at these guys and evaluate them. So I think it'd be best for everybody involved if they pushed it back until February, March. Well, that begs the other question. Excuse me, Tom. That begs the other question. You know, if I'm a, a four or five star and my season gets pushed to January, why would I play? You're not going to. You're going to see, you know, I've talked to high school coaches about this. I think you're going to see um, you'll probably have a more fair playing field because so many kids are going to leave. Um, it's, it's, it's basically going to be like bowl games now where guys are like, hey, why should I? I already have my scholarship locked up. Why should I risk injury? So, I mean, maybe it'll get, it works both ways. There may be guys that do play in January or late December that have no offers and they blow up like, a, you know, Devontae Freeman, the reason he got recruited was because of what he did in the playoffs in the state championship. He went off. Um, yet, you know, he was a guy that was, you know, sitting behind another kid that was a Division One player of the year before. But, you know, he broke records in the playoffs that year. And in front of Jimbo at the state championship, I think he ran for like 200 yards and helped them win the state championship over Dr. Phillips. So it's going to – well, a, a lot of kids may decide to step aside, and but it's going to open opportunities for guys. And I think that helps someone like Norvell that's looking for some under-the-radar guys that maybe weren't starting, but all of a sudden they're starting and they're starring and they perform at a high level and maybe, you, you know, find a kid later in the process. I know this isn't specifically what you do, but what's realistic on where Florida State can finish in terms of recruiting rankings or or more to the point, does that even really matter, which goes back to the five-star who maybe is not dependable versus a three- or four-star who's going to show up and give you significant snaps his whole career? Yeah, this year Florida State just needs to focus on making that roster better at certain positions. I mean, the offensive line, we've talked about it. It, it seems like a, a yearly thing with Florida State over the last five, six, seven, it, it goes back 10 years of, you know, recruiting. I mean, but you look at the one team that, the one team that won the national championship um, in 2013, Jose Matias was committed to Rutgers and they flipped him. Uh, the uh, Jackson kid was from Georgia. He was a D tackle. Uh, Brian Stork was a tight end. Um, you know, Bobby Hart was a kid that had talent, but people questioned his ability. So you can find guys, especially on the old line. And that's the main thing is Florida State can't, you know, Norvell and them can't really worry about their recruiting rankings. Fix old line, get competency at the quarterback position. They're going to find running backs and wide receivers, DB. You don't have to ever worry about Florida State having bad receivers. I, it's, you could probably look back the last 30 years, even when they had guys like Richard Goodman and Burt Reed, those guys got tryouts in the NFL. So, like, you could find guys walking the streets in the state of Florida that could play receiver and, and end up pretty good players. It's that old line, the quarterback position, those positions, you know, finding guys up front on the D-line, uh, which Florida State seems to continue to find all the time. So it's that old line and quarterback position. They got to they gotta solve those problems, uh, especially if they want to compete with the Clemsons uh, you, you look at last year what um, Sam Howell did at you know North Carolina. He looks he was committed to Florida State all the way to signing day. You saw the difference he made. I mean, you put him at Florida State last you know 
uh, last year, Tagger may still have a job at Florida State. So it, it, those positions are important for a reason and why so many coaches try to fill those uh, positions up. Charles, we appreciate your insight, and uh, hopefully we'll get back to football on the field at all levels here sooner rather than later. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us today. No, I appreciate you having me. Our Osceola insider, Charles Fishbein. We'll take a break, come back, react to that right after this on Front Row Knowles. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by the Osceola, dedicated to FSU sports and fan experiences. Sign up for a free trial at theosceola.com or call 833-FSU-NEWS. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Tom and KJ with you. Keith, you and I don't dive deep into recruiting. Obviously, Charles Fishbein, he's been at it a long, a long time, and he's a little different than uh, he doesn't cater to the fans, per se. He caters to the coaches, and he's trying coaches. to get student-athlete scholarships. But the, the premise is the same. He's seen the kids play, and he knows what he's talking about. Uh, I'm going to use this opportunity to say this, Keith, because you, uh, you in particular, you and I in general, are not the five-star guys. Broad perspective, yes, the team with more better players is going to win more times than not. But when you get into the nuance of it, Kalen Laburn was a five-star that everybody's drooled over for several years, and I don't know what he did as we're talking right now, uh, and I'm not going to besmirch him on the way out, but until you've seen it on the field, which is kind of what you and I say, and you know that it's going to be dependable, don't put all your eggs in that five-star recruiting basket. There's no question. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we've continued to harp on that I think at least at face value, there's a, a body of work is this thing called development of players. And uh, when he was at Arizona State, when he was at Memphis, hopefully now at Florida State, you know, Norvell has a history of doing that, taking a kid that's a little raw or a little young or, or didn't come from a sophisticated program, and you bring him into your system and you um, find ways to motivate him, find ways to – work on his body physique, find ways to work in the weight room and, and then get him out on the field and work on those areas that, uh, you know, he, he, he's not as gifted as. You can develop a player. Um, and you and I were talking before we, we came on the air, you know, there's, there's, there's three consistent, consistent things in recruiting. Uh, and, and Charles kind of talked about one as it relates to the portal. Uh, and the first one is, if you've got to go to junior college, there was a reason. And, uh, you know, Walter Jones is probably the biggest exception of kids that went the J.C. route and then came to Florida State and, and had some success. And in his case, great success, and now a member of the NFL Hall of Fame. The second principle is that, you know, the more complicated the recruiting, the more uh, drama, as you like to say, associated with the recruiting – then the less likely you're going to have a successful collegiate career. This is like Newton's law. I'm going to call it Block's law. The more drama before you sign, the less productivity once you sign. That's just a general rule. I haven't really dug in. I'm sure there's plenty who buck that trend. But historically, the guy who's sitting there on signing day with five hats that has been telling you one week he's going here and the next week he's going there and the week after that he's going here, at the end of the day, he's not the guy you remember in the class as much. 
And the third thing is you, you can't have all five stars. They don't get along. You've got to have, and our listeners have heard me say this till they want to pull their own hair out, but you got to have some mules. And I'm not being disrespectful because I was a mule. I was not, uh, I, I might've been a two star, you know, 40 years ago, if they'd had such a thing, but you've got to have a blend of those elite athletes. And you've got to have, you know, the glue guys as coach Gladden likes to talk about. That's exactly, that's exactly what I was going to say. A glue guy. You're from Wildwood. You can say mule. I've told this story before, but the one year Jeremy Pruitt was here, I interviewed the coordinators every week. And so it's not that I spend hours with them, but when the interview's finished, you might have a short conversation. And this was in the 2013 season when he was here. And it might have been right after the Clemson game, which was the 51 to whatever drubbing. And he was so concerned, he said, We don't have enough glue guys here. There are not, a, now he had come from Alabama, but his concern about FSU's roster was there's not enough glue guys. And if you recall, the 2013 team, from an injury luck standpoint, nobody got hurt and nobody missed starts. And so you were able to get by with it. But it's right on your point that you're making that you need glue guys. Now, you don't want all glue guys. <laughs> yeah, you can't teach speed. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. You can't coach them up. Let, let me, let's have this conversation, Keith. We, we've speculated forever about when the season will start and even as news starts to trickle out about what all the plans are. We still don't know when we wake up on September 5th if there's going to be an outbreak at Florida State or somewhere else or, you know, are you going to play that week? Are you going to have to take 14 days off? But in terms of installing a new offense, a new system – trying to conduct football practice. I mean, you can sit six feet apart. You can wear a mask if you're inside and you can socially distance. You can have a segment either continue to meet by Zoom or maybe they're in the big meeting room, even though there's only 10 of them, so you're spread out. But at some point, you're at the line of scrimmage. And I don't care how wide a gap you're going to put between the DN and the D tackle, you're not going to be socially distancing and playing football. So how do you get through football practice? The, the bottom line answer is you can't change football practice. Football practice and football games have got to be like we've known them. And I would even submit to you that your segment meetings and your team meetings have to be like we've always done them. You cannot have a Zoom segment meeting after practice when you're pointing out someone that's not giving effort or is not doing it correctly. You've got to have that face-to-face. You've got to have that in the face. And we can, you can do some things with individual workouts. You can do some things in the weight room. But the bottom line is when it comes time to play football, whether it be meetings or practice, there is no such thing as COVID restrictions or COVID changes. I'm sorry. I just believe that. And, therefore, I think that's also what's giving pause to a number of things. You heard Charles talk about, you know, Florida may not play ball until uh, January. We, we heard recently uh, in the last couple of days, I guess, that, you know, in Leon County, you can only play county schools. They're not going to allow them to travel. Well, you can affect travel. You can affect the individual workouts. And as I mentioned, you can do those other things. But when it comes to the football, you can't change that. I don't think. Yeah, no, I, I agree with your premise, especially on the field. 
off the field, it's less than ideal to change all those things, but you could. I don't think it'd be nearly as effective, but you could continue to meet via Zoom. You could, instead of sitting down in the cafeteria, everybody gets a boxed lunch and they take it home to eat. But this goes down to Keith, you know, when you're on the road, and I don't honestly know how Florida State has broken up their rooming assignments, but there's plenty of programs that would have the first and second string quarterback rooming together. Well, now you have, might have the first string quarterback with the fourth string linebacker because you don't want to pass it from the starter to the immediate backup. I mean, there's all kinds of things at play. Because what you're not going to do, if you're the pros, you're going to get everybody their own hotel room. But we're in a budget situation here at College Athletics, so you're still going to be sharing rooms uh, to get through this, and you're going to have to manage the roster and the rooming list that way. There's all kinds of things. I mean, you know, again, one of the conversations that I know folks are having about the schedule is, you know, instead of if you're playing 10 plus two, instead of five road games that you have to fly to, let's schedule two of them you can bus. I'm sorry, Tom. I've been on a bus. I'd rather be on the airplane for 45 minutes than on the bus for four hours. I've had I that. Mean, there's those, those types of things I just don't think, we're going to, you're going to have to experience them and then change them when they don't work, if they don't work. I've had that same thought regarding the science of uh, prolonged time in the same airspace. And I don't mean literally in the air, but I mean, it's right. one of the reasons you're advised to sit outside at a restaurant, and not inside of it. Well, if that's the case, are you better served getting on a plane for a 38 minute flight to Atlanta to play Georgia Tech or busing for four and a half hours where you're all breathing the same airspace? So I don't, now, from a cost standpoint, definitely going to be friendlier on the budget if everybody is driving from point A to point B instead of flying. So I, it's, there's just so many decisions out there that need to get made. Um, and once again, I'm, not, I'm thinking, well, how do you practice social distancing in the shower? All right, all right, Tom, you get to shower at 12 minutes after the game, and then the offensive line has to shower at 16 minutes after the game. <laughs> I mean, I'm being ridiculous, but it's not ridiculous. Well, Keith, I saw something last week on the reliable news source that is Twitter. And I don't recall who tweeted it, and I don't think I've seen it since. But it was that the NCAA has, is, is considering changing the coin toss rules so that only one player from each team comes out for the coin toss. Now, you're still going to play football for 60 minutes after the kickoff. So are we really solving the many problems there? Are we putting our finger in the dike? How about this one? We had a game, uh, I think, over the weekend where the Marlins were in Philadelphia. Is that where they were? Or in, in, in New York, wherever they were. Several of the Marlins players contracted or were tested positive. So the next game was canceled, but the Marlin players remained in that city in quarantine. And whoever was coming in to play the next team, they canceled that game because they weren't sure that they could get the visitor's locker room that the Marlins had been in sufficiently cleaned to make it viable for the next visiting team to come in and use that visiting locker room. Now, again, baseball, you play dang near every day. I get that. Football once a week. But those types of issues we haven't even begun thinking about. And I don't present them in a negative way. I go back to my original comment. There's just some things you can't change. So just get on with it. 
and let's do the things that make sense and are smart. But some things you just can't change because it's football. Yeah, and I, I swear I didn't dream that up, and maybe that's coming to fruition on the coin toss. The same report, if that's the right word, tweet. Uh, I think it mentioned that they're going to extend the box, you know, the in the box area where the players are is, what is it, from the 30 to the 30? I think I think they're extending it 15 yards either way, maybe, so that people can social distance on the sideline. So that one makes more sense than the coin toss to me. But uh, your point is right on. The bigger question here that's come up this week, Keith, if pro teams who have a lot more money to throw at this and can test a lot more frequently and have a lot more resources and they're dealing with employees that in theory you can hold your thumb over a little bit more, Maybe not if you're talking about, you know, players who make a lot more than the coaches. Uh, and they are having issues already. What in the world is a college football season going to look like if we try to kick it off? And one other complicating factor is those are professionals. So they're 22, 23 years of age and older. But when it comes to college, you're dealing with 18 to 22-year-olds. And we've already seen, if you followed any of the news in Florida, where – High school and college kids are renting homes and holding parties with three and five and 700 people because they think they're invincible and nothing bad could happen. So there we are, our weekly COVID update. Uh, We need a sponsor for the COVID segment, Keith. Anyway, uh, so a little bit. I'll work on that. A little bit different this week because. KJ is going to be out of pocket. That's why this show has uh, Keith in the middle, but not on the ends at the front and the back. But I do want to mention this. We, uh, Bob and I talked about it at the start of the show, Keith. But uh, for those who didn't hear that, I wanted to give you a chance to, uh, I guess, wish, you know, good wishes to, to Blaine Thomas and Bob Thomas and the Thomas family. Um, for, for those who don't know, and again, this is a repeating some of the content from the first segment, but Bob, has been around these parts for a long time, was the beat writer for the Florida Times Union, works at Florida State Athletics, and his son, who went to Childs and uh, graduated from Florida State, is now a, a second-year divinity student at Duke, and he was shot in a drive-by uh, random shooting last Friday night. And since then, the prognosis ultimately is good, but it's a long road, and he's been through multiple surgeries already. And I guess I'm just giving you a chance to, to wish the family well, Keith. Well, and just that, as soon as I heard the news, I texted Bob. He got right back to me. Actually, Blaine was in the middle of surgery uh, when, he, when, when Bob and I were communicating. Um, I, I, had not, I knew of Blaine. My sister Carly also went to Florida State. She ran track. I knew her a little better than I'd only met Blaine one time. Um, but it just illustrates um, so many things about where our world is, not to get too uh, philosophical, but, but second-year divinity student, um, a counselor, um, was assisting a neighbor, the reason he was where he was at at the time he was at, and then just a random act of, of violence almost cuts his life short and certainly alters his life. And uh, if there ever was a guy that was on a track to be helpful and assisting people, it's Blaine. And, you know, we, as you mentioned, we've known Bob for almost 30 years. And if there have ever been a family that was close-knit and doing it the right way, 
So our, our love, our prayers, our best wishes just go out to them. They have a GoFundMe page. You can look it up if you want to contribute to them uh, monetarily, but certainly keep them in your thoughts and prayers. The prognosis is good, but the road recovery potentially long, and certainly the uh, strain on the family uh, big, but we wish them well, and uh, hopefully uh, everything will turn out uh, in a positive fashion. I can't add anything better than what you just said, Keith. So well done. Appreciate it. You and I will catch up next week. We'll come back and do the final segment of Front Row Knowles right after this. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to KJ. A little bit uh, different Format for the show this week, as as mentioned earlier, Keith had some uh, business travel to account for. So, uh, Bob, appreciate you standing in. Uh, and, and Bob, just to piggyback, Keith just uh, and I just talked a little bit about Bob Thomas and his son Blaine and what the Thomas family's going through. I know that you and you know one thing that's been nice to see, and you and I have been part of the Florida State media circuit, if you will, for a while. Uh, a lot of folks stepped up, you know, they're really, you could see the family, not just on the media circuit, but from Florida state and from the Tallahassee community in general uh, for, for what's a tough spot for the Thomas family. Yeah. When I, when I heard about it, my, my heart sunk. We, we lived down the street from Bob Thomas and the family. And I, I've known Bob since probably 1994, 95. And it, it, it hurt. And I, I immediately just wanted to know the status updates as often as I could. But I think this is the good thing about a, a site like GoFundMe where, you know, again, Bob's daughter, Carly, was able to start the, the fund. And, and to see, it must be, what, a thousand people, I think, had, had contributed at one point that I saw. So great to see the support. And, and it sounds like Blaine is, is doing really, really well and out of ICU and in recovery. So, you know, our, our thoughts are with him and we hope, um, we hope for a speedy recovery. I know he, uh, he has great plans ahead for his future. Bob, as we wrap up, we haven't uh, given you a chance to talk about uh, some additions and subtractions for Florida State football. Uh, Not surprisingly, FSU got the news, or two players did, that they won't have to sit out a year after transferring in, and so they've got an immediate waiver of eligibility. Uh, Well, let me stop there. What does that add, first of all, in terms of getting those two guys eligible for what could be a pretty good defense this year? Yeah, if you're asking yourself what position group do you feel the best about going 2020, I think it's probably defensive tackle and defensive back, and and those guys only strengthen those positions. Probably guys who aren't going to start, but definitely guys who are going to contribute, and that that certainly helps. And then the subtraction is that Kalen Laburn is no longer on the team, uh, certainly a checkered career, one that was much more about hype and press clippings than anything that ever materialized on the field, save for one really nice catch and run, well, a touchdown in a spring game and one really nice catch and run against Virginia Tech and then a horrific injury. Uh, Not a lot else there for a guy that came in as a five-star and the top running back in the country. 
a lot of promise left unfulfilled. I, I think we saw glimpses of what he could offer and, and that was really left at that. You know, it, it's, it's crazy to say because Florida State has lost Cam Akers and now Leyburn and, of course, Anthony Grant. So when you lose two five stars and a pretty good running back like Grant, you, you start to worry. But looking at this running back room, I think you've got guys of, of every shape and size, but a lot of speed, a lot of talent. Um, I think everybody feels like Jay Sean Corbin is the front runner to be the starting tailback, but he doesn't need to be that 20 carry type of guy, that workhorse. You know, Mike Norvell seems to like to rotate those backs and, and kind of use them in different situations. So, you know, I, I think freshmen can be leaned on a, a little bit here and there, but, you know, having a guy like with Damian Webb, who's got some Juco experience, he's just five foot eight, but there's been some really good smaller running backs out there in Florida State history who've been really successful. And I think Florida State has that kind of running back by committee opportunity this year. And, you know, yes, you miss a guy like Kaylin Weyburn, but I I don't feel necessarily bad about what you have. It's not one of my biggest question marks by far on offense. So I think Norvell still has a lot of options to play with. Bob, appreciate your insight. You can uh, read Bob's work. Uh, the Osceola.com encourage you to subscribe. We'll check in again next week. Uh, maybe we'll finally have an answer. I mean, they can't kick this down the curb forever. Eventually, we'll be in September, Bob. But I do, I do think it does feel like D-Day is coming on August 5th here. I, I say it again. It feels like the Tom Petty song. That the waiting is the hardest part. It's been the hardest part of this whole summer is waiting for some kind of conclusion. But next week, we promise next week we'll have something, right? Uh, yeah, until next week we show up and we promise it'll be the week after that. Hopefully our listeners will keep coming back. Thanks for tuning in. This is Front Row Knowles. All in all, it's just a brick in the wall.